Welcome to another edition of the APA Podcast. This episode is brought to you by ENCODE Plus. Would you like to make your development regulations online and fully interactive? Wish your GIS map was online with links to the zoning districts and standards? With ENCODE Plus, all this is possible. This cloud-based software manages your ordinance content and publishes it to the web. Plus, you're able to update and manage in-house. Communities both big and small have trusted the planners of Kendig Keist Collaborative and ENCODE Plus to make their codes more usable, helpful, and accessible. They're now a partner with MuniCode, the nation's largest codifier. Visit www.encodeplus.com, email info at encodeplus.com, or call 281-302-5847. Get ENCODE Plus today. It's been more than a half century since streetcars ran in Kansas City, Missouri. That will all change on Friday, May 6, 2016, with the grand opening of the long-awaited streetcar line. After years of planning and construction, streetcars are once again returning to the streets of Kansas City. I'm Mike Johnson with the American Planning Association. Joining me today are Kyle Elliott, Division Manager from the Department of Long-Range Planning and Preservation for Kansas City, and David Johnson, Vice Chair for Kansas City Regional Transit Alliance. Thank you both for chatting with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. All right, so we're, we're a few days out from the official grand opening of the KC Streetcar Line coming this Friday, uh, which will be open to the public. Kyle, I'd like to start with you here. Can you tell us a little bit about the streetcar project? Maybe give us some of the vitals. Uh, you know, how long is the streetcar line, and where is it located specifically in downtown? The, the streetcar project itself is, is roughly two miles. It runs through the central business uh, district of Kansas City, starts in a river market district, and then it extends down Main Street um, until you get to our our Union Station, basically on Pershing, Pershing uh, Road. Basically, it serves the most uh, dense portion of the city. When I say dense, we're talking everything from the most uh, housing units or not housing units, dwelling units in the area, as well as employment opportunities and economic development generation locations as well. So, Kyle, you're the division manager for long-range planning and preservation. How long has this project been in the works? And can you tell us a little bit about what that process looks like? So the, the first time that this uh, really came about formally um, was in February of 2011. That's when we kind of started posting the RFP for an AA or an alternative analysis to look at what type of transportation option uh, we would like to have in our downtown in addition to the bus system we have and the, and the highway network and the street network that we have. Um, and how that took place was a coordinated effort between um, our MPO, Mid-American Regional Council, the Public Works Department of the city, the uh, area stakeholders in the city planning and development department. Uh, Dave, did I miss anything in there? No, that covers it. Uh, as we went through that process, uh, the AA or the alternative analysis uh, was adopted. And at that point, it was chose that modern streetcar was going to be the, the mode of transportation and the route was going to be uh, down our main street, about two, two mile route. Uh, one of the, the questions that was decided through that uh, process too was how we were going to fund that process. In addition to that, uh, we, we discussed several mechanisms about funding approach for that. In December of, I believe, 2012 is when we actually went forward with the TDD 
uh, election to actually fund the streetcar project. So I'd like to turn over to you, David. Uh, you're one of the leading community activists behind the KC streetcar. Why do you feel so strongly about bringing a streetcar to Kansas City? Well, the main reason is we've been struggling with building rail transit uh, through Kansas City's urban core for decades. So really there was sort of a, are we going to do it or are we not, sort of mentality at the start of this project. Uh, people were really sort of tired uh, about the issue. We voted on it. Uh, I think nine times citywide, uh, whether that was through petition initiative or an official city-backed plan or uh, backed by the local transit agency. And so I think people just were like, you know, they took a look at it and they were like, again? Um, (laughs) But uh, the way the vote was organized with a special district around the route where the primary funding source was the people who would benefit the most, I mean, that really resonated with a lot of uh, people who felt like, well, if I live on the far fringe of the city, why should I pay a sales tax for something that I won't be near or probably won't use? So, I mean, there was very much a sort of value capture and the people who are going to use it and benefit from it will be paying uh, the lion's share of the cost. Um, so that was, that was the appeal to me. Uh, I've been writing about transit in Kansas City uh, since 2006. I write com and very active on Twitter uh, with continuing the advocacy there. And, you know, the, that, that plan that, that did pass and then was repealed, I mean, it got really messy. So, you know, we've been messy on this topic multiple times. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't really, uh, we knew a lot of the players, uh, the, the plan itself, the corridor itself had been studied extensively before all the way through you know, steps of early steps of engineering. So um, it, it allowed the project to essentially be fast-tracked, uh, which was very beneficial uh, in obtaining federal funding and uh, also sort of giving the community a sigh of relief that this was finally resolved. We picked a street. We picked a mode. It's happening, albeit in a smaller segment. And, you know, we're ready to move forward and, and be the city that we, you know, have always wanted to be. As a, then as a side note, I live and work on the two-mile alignment. So while it is short, it does serve a true transportation purpose for me and many others who live downtown. So in your opinion, how important was you know, the, the whole community engagement angle in, in making the streetcar become a reality? Well, it was very critical. I mean, part of my goal the moment the city uh, decided they would you know, embark on the, on the project was to organize the neighborhoods that the streetcar would run through because uh, downtown's residential population is all relatively new. Uh, it was just pretty much a central business district and light industrial for most of its, uh, well, I guess, sort of post-war life. And so, uh, you know, there was no political um, sort of ground swell uh, for, for pretty much any topic uh, because the residents were pretty much new to living in the middle of the city. So, um, you know, we had three different neighborhoods uh, that are along the line that hadn't really sort of coordinated together or knew each other or really worked on anything larger than themselves. And so this was an opportunity for us to stitch all that together and make uh, a a new political voice for this new urban population. If I might add to that, whenever the city goes out and we're going to make something large like this that is going to be really transformative, which which we hope that it is, 
the main thing that we want is for it to be you know collaborative and transparent and basically driven by what the citizens and the stakeholders in those areas want as david said um, this area is about 2005 is whenever most of the current population started to come down here between 2005 and 2007 and that's really when we started to hear their voices and we wanted to make sure that as more people moved down here we had the right tools that they needed to, to continue to live down here so yeah, when the city embarked on its on its uh, community engagement process, uh, you know we were prepared to answer the questions that they were asking. So that was that was my personal goal because having followed these um, these projects pretty closely, you know, and knowing what an alternative analysis was, uh, that there would need to be consensus on some key questions. So you know, a precise alignment, a, a mode choice. Uh, these are all things that people don't tend to think about unless they're asked, and then by the time the city's ready for an answer, it may be, you know, you haven't received all the information or determined what's the best answer for you personally. So, you know, we did a lot of education early on. We lobbied pretty heavily for a specific alignment, and that was the one that was chosen. Uh, we also lobbied for a specific mode that was also chosen. Um, you know, there was a lot of momentum behind these choices, but we helped sort of nudge things along and make it a pretty clear consensus from a residential perspective. So, David, I want to kind of ask you a little bit more broadly, why, and, and for other folks in other cities that may have projects coming uh, in the future, for them, why do transportation projects like this one need the support of advocates, uh, you know, like people like you? Well, we have this strange thing in America where we think transit projects have to be treated separately from all other transportation projects. Uh, and by extension of that, they usually require a public vote for a new source of revenue. Uh, that's problematic for a lot of reasons. Number one, uh, a, a transportation project is usually sort of a corridor or, you know, maybe if you're lucky, which was, you know, our 2014 plan, a series of short corridors, um, which may or may not offer a service to everyone who's deciding the issue. And so, you know, it, 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 people don't vote on freeways, generally speaking, it rarely happens. Uh, we're a little bit of an anomaly where we're going to be voting on our airports, um, uh, and it doesn't even require a tax increase. It's, it's, it's a strange thing. But it, 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 transit projects in particular are treated, uh, are held to a higher standard, and um, it usually has to do with seeking a new revenue source and then making that palatable to the federal government, which is much like rest, the rest of the transportation projects, a, a, a big partner. And so you have to have, um, you know, prove that you have local capital funding and operational funding for a, a lengthy period of time. Uh, and most states and municipalities rely on a very highly structured, well-funded Department of Transportation to handle all the surface the remaining service transportation. So that's a very long-winded response to, you know, for some reason we treat transit projects differently, and so advocacy is very, very important in uh, backing the political will to finally build something. On the topic of funding, I'd like to turn back to Kyle, and, and like David mentioned, obviously pulling together funding for a transportation project of this scale can be challenging. Kyle, can you talk a little bit about funding for the project from your perspective? Transportation in general has kind of taken a different uh, approach than what it would have been, say, before 2000. Almost every transit, large transit component that came in since then has been had to take a layer, layered approach. We've had to seek several different forms of, of funding for it. For, for this one, 
we knew we were going to have to, uh, as David mentioned earlier, look at those areas that are going to do the value capture of those that are going to use it up front, and, uh, and that's where we look for the TOD uh, on there to do some sales taxes and some, some special assessments as well. In addition to that, we had some federal grants that we were able to apply on top of it, uh, some STP funding, uh, and a couple of the other TIFs or tax increments that we have in the area had some surpluses as well. That all relate pretty much to uh, being able to assist this, this project itself. So one of the other things I wanted to touch on with you, Kyle, is Kansas City, as you both know, uh, is one of the five regional sites for HUD's uh, recent Prosperity Playbook initiative. What does the streetcar mean for increasing mobility and creating better access to opportunity-rich neighborhoods? So the Prosperity Playbook itself is a you peer-to-peer know, uh, kind of best-case scenario, best-practices approach to you're looking at how to address uh, fair housing and, and issues like that. And one of the issues that faces a lot of fair housing has to do with access to housing, has to do with access to uh, places to work and places to shop. So anytime you can introduce another mode of transportation to any of those elements and connect the residential component with the shopping component or with the employment component, it is uh, definitely one of those, we hope, best practices that, that we can actually expand on, especially as at some point there's more density along this corridor or the corridor itself extends. So we're really hoping that this will be one of the keys to help us provide better housing um, in those areas, uh, as well as some economic development and that's going to help these neighborhoods uh, be sustainable as we go forward. And so touching on sort of the uh, economic development aspect to this project, the streetcar runs through the Crossroads Arts District, which was nominated as a APA Great Place in America last year in 2015. Has the construction of the streetcar spurred any additional economic development, and have you heard any positive feedback from the business community about the addition of the streetcar? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually the neighborhood president for the Crossroads. I accepted the award at the APA meeting in Kansas City last uh, fall, so we, we, we are very proud of what we built in the Crossroads. A lot of it's organic development. What we've seen since the streetcar was approved in 2012 uh, is a different caliber of development. Um, it's more transit-oriented. It's more mixed-use. It's new construction. Our neighborhood has never had new construction since it was defined as an arts district. And so seeing that for the first time and seeing those projects actually, you know, immediately come online, or not immediately, but come online before the streetcar opens, uh, I think exceeded everyone's expectation. We have uh, 44 units of market rate residential that opened up right on the line with a, with a retail stall in the lower level that's actually opening um, stall, the, the retail shop will open. Uh, Friday in time for the streetcar itself opening. Uh, we've also got uh, a 12-story residential tower that's a couple blocks away uh, that is going to be one of the tallest buildings in our neighborhood uh, and, and obviously very dense with residents. Um, and then, you know, a lot of a lot of renovations of our older building stock, which was, of course, previously uh, light industrial, has accelerated, and we're seeing more office demand, small office, uh, but still office demand, uh, which, you know, in a neighborhood that was primarily sort of creative style, you know, businesses. So uh, starting with art galleries, extending into uh, other sort of creative services, video production, uh, and now like law firms and 
um, you know, real estate agents, you know, all kinds of businesses are looking to be part of this thing that we've created because it's, it's, it's kind of a hot neighborhood right now. So, you know, people really want to be someplace. We haven't had a good history in Kansas City of, of much of a street culture or urban sort of vitality, at least not in the current generation. So people are really attracted to that. It's the only place in the city where you've got people on top of businesses that mixed use transit all coming together and making this really sort of great creative soup that's just really driving driving demand beyond what we've normally seen. And if I can expand on that, one of the things that uh, we were asked to do right up front was to look at how this investment on our end, on the, the cities and on the taxpayers and would actually benefit the area. So we track permit activity and development activity along the TDD area. And right now, all told, it's a little over $1.5 billion of, of investment in that area uh, for projects that come through. Now, not all those um, are just because the streetcar is there. A lot of that has to do with active communities that are there uh, and that were there before. This is just one of those other things that attracted and it may have made the the, uh, the final decision to make a lot of these developments occur along this corridor or in the TV. Yeah, and because and because the funding mechanism is sort of based on value capture, it almost doesn't matter whether the project was related to the streetcar or not, because what matters is that the value of the district rises over time and accelerates more rapidly than it would have otherwise. And then that allows the assessments and sales tax that are collected by the district to go down, uh, thus sort of lowering the impact to you know the people that bought and approved it in the first place. So um, that's sort of the genius behind the plan, and it doesn't sort of require the city to invest uh, anything on it. You know, sort of a, I think the annual investment for the city is two million dollars, and to have that kind of economic activity return on a $2 million annual contribution is pretty amazing. And it's, it's kind of shocking that people still think that the math doesn't add up because you know, all you have to do is walk the street uh, and have walked it maybe five or 10 years ago, and it's instant you know, how much different it is. The vibrancy, the number of people walking around casually, uh, the businesses that are popping up. I mean, it's really an amazing transformation. And I think that might be the bigger issue than anything, just the caliber of development and just the feel along the corridor is totally different than it has been uh, for the 10 years that I've been with the city. It's just really a nice place, inviting place to walk. It only kind of has been, but it's even more alive now than it, than it was prior. Yeah, and then I'll add on to the walkability factor. That's a big thing for me as well because it's so interwoven with the success of transit. And, you know, part of the project, which kind of we don't talk about much recently, but um, we did a road diet through the crossroads. So we took a four-lane um, facility that's 35 miles an hour and basically took a traffic lane out, used that traffic lane also for streetcar, kept all the on-street parking, and just sort of as soon as those uh, stripes were repainted, I mean, the neighborhood just calmed down considerably, uh, you know, from what was probably you could call an auto, you know, a car sewer to something that was uh, a lot more interesting to kind of just casually walk around in. So I wanted to move back a little bit into talking about the event that's coming up on Friday, the official launch. 
So either one of you, Kyle or David, what do you expect the reaction will be from the community at the grand opening and shortly after the opening when, when people can finally ride? Well, I'll, I'll start first, Kyle. Um, so my expectation is that um, everybody's going to get a ride that wants to. <laughs> and um, as most system openings, you know, can, can exhibit, it, we're going to have, you know, a crush of people and they're all going to want to experience it and it's going to be a nice collective uh, party. We're actually calling it a street party, the city's largest street party, uh, because we're really trying to sort of take the pressure off the system because it's not designed to carry thousands of people all at once. I mean, it's a, it's a relatively uh, small scale system, uh, which is great for daily use. But uh, so we're throwing a big party in every neighborhood, and you know, parking lots are being turned into sort of beer gardens, and you know, our our first Friday gallery walk is extending into. Saturday, uh, which is something we've only done once before, uh, and I'm running a pop-up record shop in a, in, a, in a storefront that would normally not be active. So, I mean, there's all kinds of things happening, and it's going to be a really great urban experience, whether you enjoy riding the streetcar or not, but we hope everyone will. And I, I think most people that uh, haven't experienced a streetcar or haven't experienced downtown Kansas City are going to be pleasantly surprised at what this corridor and what this... Uh, what the streetcar itself has to offer. It's a really uh, unique corridor in and itself, and as streetcar um, has been constructed, many of the open lots that were there have have begun to be built up with, with new uses, and a lot of those, just as David suggested, a lot of those open storefronts um, are occupied that weren't before. So I think people are going to really get an urban feel for, for the downtown area that maybe they didn't know existed. It's, they're going to be pleasantly surprised with with what the, the streetcar and downtown has to offer. Well, it sounds like it's uh, set up to be a pretty good time. I want to kind of close out on maybe looking towards the future. What, Kyle or David, what do you think the streetcar will mean in a more broad sense for the future of Kansas City? Do you think the project could be a catalyst for additional transit projects or maybe an expansion on this current streetcar line? We've already looked at one uh, potential expansion project, and we've, we had really good citizen turnout, and we had uh, we had we had a lot of different neighborhoods that we talked about, and David talked about uh, a portion of it. They were smaller extensions in the neighborhood that were going to serve off of this line. Um, it's it's kind of tough at this point to tell when uh, the city will look to expand or if the city will look to expand, but it's very clear right now that the the starter line itself has done a lot of really quality things for the downtown corridor. So we would hope that if expansion is pursued, that it would have a very similar impact on the areas that, that are considered. Yeah, I mean, there's a southern extension to the university, the, you know, the sort of urban university that we have. Uh, and if you're familiar with Kansas City, near the Country Club Plaza, uh, which in and of itself is a, is, a, is a big draw, both for employment, local uh, locals and and visitors. So, um, you know, that extension scored the highest, I believe. Uh, Kyle, keep me honest. Yeah, and, that's uh, Yeah, so, you know, that would be the obvious candidate if the city were to, or someone were to pick up uh, the extension or expansion conversation again, uh, and hopefully soon. I mean, I think a lot of people told me, I worked on both campaigns, and, you know, if we were just doing a downtown election, people would say, well, why don't you go all the way to the plaza, you know? Or, uh, it's just such a it's such a uh, obvious place to go, uh, and actually we have a, an existing BRT line that runs all that 
in that direction, and it's pretty successful. I mean, it boosted ridership in the corridor 50%. So this will be an interesting, if we go that route uh, with the next attempt, it'll be interesting because it'll be the first time, I think, in the U.S. that a BRT line has been replaced with streetcar. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to consider the, the comparison of the before and after uh, of, of those conditions. So if that route is pursued, Kansas City kind of has three uh, three downtown areas. Just has one that everybody recognizes, which is the Central Business District. But as you extend down Maine and you get to about Pershing, you've reached two of those. The third would be the Plaza area or or near uh, UMKC that, that David suggested. So this would be natural progression for business. Uh, there's a lot of density along those corridors. If that's the route that 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 people want to to go on in and if they want to act on an expansion uh, effort. Well, thank you both. If our listeners want to learn a little bit more about the project, where should we send them? David, I know you mentioned that you have a blog and you write uh, fairly often on this topic. Uh, what is the blog? And you also mentioned that you were on Twitter. Can you give us your handle? Yeah, it's Casey Lightrail for both. So CaseyLightrail.com for the blog and Casey Lightrail on Twitter. And then the alliance is at CaseyRTA.org. Uh, and you'll find more sort of regional kind of focus there. And Kyle, is there any uh, sites that you'd like to plug for folks who want to learn a little bit more about the project? Uh, there's, there's information on just the regular Kansas City, Missouri webpage as well. And, and, and David, what is the regular streetcar mail address? KCStreetcar.org. So that's okay. the, the, the information for the current line and how to get in touch with anybody there. Uh, and then uh, all the information about this weekend's opening is also on that site. Okay, and we're going to keep a close eye on the the launch party, so to speak, on Friday. We'll have uh, APA member and also a fellow planner for the city of Kansas City, Joseph Blankenship, is going to do an Instagram takeover and, and do some coverage for APA and all of our followers. So check us out on Instagram, at American Planning Association, and follow uh, – the whole party uh, from Joe's perspective and also stay tuned to planning.org in the next coming days and weeks as we'll add a little bit more coverage of the Kansas City streetcar launch. Thanks again, Kyle and David, for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity.